That's the book of James, chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 13 to 17. Verse 13, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the names of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed to praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin, begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? May the Lord have a blessing to reading and the understanding of this great portion of Scripture for our hearts this morning. Let's bow our heads and hearts for prayer. Please uh, turn in your Bible to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And I will read for us verses 13 to 17. If uh, you're using a pew Bible there in front of you, it's on page 899 of your pew Bible. James chapter 4. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. This is the word of the Lord. Now last week, as many of you know, I was in Louisville, Kentucky, for the Together for the Gospel conference. And it was, it was really a, a fantastic time of, of spiritual refreshment. As, as we sat, there was about 7,000 people there. And as we sat together under some fantastic preaching. And just, just every time I heard a new sermon, it was my new favorite. As, as the week went on, and it was really, God was, was really glorified, I believe, in what went on there. Now, one of the, the speakers um, who spoke was, was a man named Matt Chandler. If you're not familiar with Matt Chandler, he's a pastor of a, quite a large church in uh, Houston, Texas, and, uh, and he um, is, is really quite well known for, for a, a major event that happened in his life just about two years ago. Now, Matt Chandler also spoke at um, Southern Seminary, this, the seminary that I attended in the fall of 2009, and I had never heard of him before that day, but he was presented to me by a friend as, as a, a quote-unquote up-and-coming preacher, and, uh, and well worth listening to. So I went to chapel with, with expectation, really having um, no idea uh, who he was, but uh, the sermon that he preached was from Hebrews chapter 11. And that's, if you're not familiar with it, that's, if you're not familiar with it, you should be, but this is the, the Hebrews Hall of Faith, where he's talking about by faith, by faith, by faith. And I was really glad that I went, because this was really one of the most convicting sermons that I ever heard. It was one of those sermons where everybody 
walked out of the chapel silent, just, just thinking about what had just been spoken before the Lord. And I know I had a, had a really good chat with a couple of friends afterwards regarding what had been presented. And he was, he was talking about the way that, that so many of us want the glory in life, but we don't want the suffering. And he prayed at the beginning of his sermon that, that however we are, that, that, God would, that God would love us, and rather that, that however we, lo- that we love us and we use God to make much of us, that God would crush us in that. Let me say it again, that where we love us and use God to make much of us, that God would crush us in that and help us to get a right focus. He explained in his sermon that it is imperative that we know history, not just biblical history, but also Christian history. And he said that, that history, Christian history, helps us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought and also saves us when everything goes bad. And he said that for almost all of you, it's going to go bad. He said for almost all of you, it's going to go bad. Now, this the chapel there, there would have been probably about 500 mostly seminary students, the majority of whom would be going out and pastoring churches and heading out as, as missionaries to the four corners of the world. And he said for most of you, things are going to go bad. Now, he is a, he's a person who, as I said, is, was very well known, called an up-and-coming preacher. His church had gone from, from a, a small little church to, 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 be, to being added to weekly, people being saved. But here he was preaching about how everything is going to go bad for most of us. Then there, less, less than a week later, it was Thanksgiving morning, 2009. He had just made himself a second cup of coffee and sat down to keep an eye on his kids, and he had a massive seizure. And the, the EMTs were called. He was rushed to the hospital. They did, they did a, a CT scan, and as it turned out, he had, he had a huge tumor in his brain. Now, this is a man, he was only in his early 30s with, with a young family and a growing church. And he, the doctor said, well, given your age and your circumstances, we, we assume it's not going to be, to be malignant, and we'll just, we'll just uh, do a, a biopsy, and we'll, or we'll, we'll keep an eye on it, and then we'll see what we can do from here. But in the biopsy, it showed that this tumor was cancerous and a particularly aggressive form of cancer. Think about the irony of that situation. He had just said less than a week previously that for many of you, it is going to go badly. And then here he was in this this most horrific of circumstances. And then through the course of the next several months, as he went through his treatment, he, he was, by God's grace, able to keep on preaching. And he publicly 
Uh, he did video blogs of, of his experiences and spoke regularly about what the Lord was doing in his heart. And this was, was such an amazing story that even the Associated Press picked it up and, and talked about how a young pastor was facing adversity through his faith. And then he spoke at, at the, the Together for the Gospel conference in 2010, and, and when he was there, he was, he was shaved bald, and he had, he had a scar that went from here to here to here. And they had actually removed a, a big portion of his frontal lobe. But all through that, he was able to testify of the grace of God. And then, as I said, he spoke again at Together for the Gospel 2012, with his hair back and, and really physically doing well and able to testify of God's sustaining grace through his trial. And one of the statements that he made kind of jokingly in the context of his, of his message was he talked about how he was going to give one of the other speakers, Mark Dever, he was going to give him a call that afternoon and, and Mark Dever added, he said, Lord willing, and Matt Chandler kind of quipped, well, I was just going to give him a phone call. But when I ask the question, what do we mean when we say, Lord willing? Matt Chandler, of all people, knows the import of that statement through what he suffered. Lord willing. We have our plans. We have the things that we want to do. But so often, we don't even consider the Lord in the plans that we make. And that is exactly what James is addressing here this morning. James begins this section by saying, come now, come now. And the NIV puts it, now listen. Of course, that is not a direct translation, but it really does capture the sense of what James is saying. He's saying to the church that he wants them to pay careful attention. And brothers and sisters, God is saying to us this morning that he wants us to pay careful attention. James here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is about to target a specific area of sin, a sin to which the wealthy are particularly prone. It's the sin of, of, of presumption, which is arrogance. So James warns them of the brevity of their life and calls their behavior evil. Now, if you think that James is being harsh with them here in chapter 4, read on into chapter 5, as we'll do in a few moments. Now, of course, most of us here don't consider ourselves very wealthy by North American standards. But let's just take a step back for a second and think about how wealthy we are by world standards. Point taken? We're all very wealthy. All of us, compared to most people around the world. But i got to say that even if we were poor by the world standards, we would still be very capable of committing the same sins that James is talking about here. Because all of us in our fallen nature, all of us in our flesh, are prone to presumption and arrogance. Commentator Peter Davids explains that what bothers James here is simply the presumption that one could so determine his future and the fact that these plans move on an entirely worldly plane in which the chief value is financial profit. 
Now, with a bit of my own alliteration to make the statement more poetic, um, the ESV Study Bible says that James criticizes wealthy merchants, demonstrating that the power of God precludes presumption in pride in making one's plans. I'll say that again. James criticizes wealthy merchants, demonstrating that the power of God precludes presumption in, and pride in making one's plans. Now, this passage here has a chiastic structure, a chiastic structure. Now, I tried to explain what chiasm was a few months ago in the Bible study, and, and, and it was probably with limited success. But the school teacher in me can't let a concept go without trying again. So, so I want to just take a moment here to try to explain to you what chiasm is, because I think it's really neat, and it will also help you in your Bible study. Uh, the word chiasm, spelled C-H-I-A-S-M, comes from the Greek letter chi or x. And the, it's, it's a literary device that is, is frequently used by the authors in the Bible to, to highlight important points in Scripture. Now, when you think about the letter x, the letter x is really like two arrows, one pointing up and the other pointing down. And that's, that's what the chiastic structure is. It points from above and below to a main central point. And so here in this passage, as I was, as I was aided by, in this by uh, uh, Donald Sunjakin's book, The Invitation to Biblical Preaching. So you see here in verse 13, which is the A, arrogantly planning your future is evil. Arrogantly planning your future is evil. And then he talks about the same thing in verses 16 and 17. Arrogantly planning your future is evil. Okay, and then he says in, in 14a that you do not know what you will do. And then in 15c, which is B prime, and what you will do. Do you see that? Do you see what's happening here? The, the, the beginning part and the end part are paired, and they point to the middle. And then C, or whether you will live, in 14b. And then in 15b, also, whether you will live. And it points to that central section of the passage, it's up to the Lord. It's up to the Lord in 15a. And that is the main point that James wants to make here in this passage. We all make these plans, but whether they are going to succeed or fail depends on God's sovereign will. And that's what James wants us to see. In 1 John 2, verses 15, and 17, 15 to 17, we read, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And that's really a summary, again, of what James is saying here, that we need to be focused on eternal things. We need to focus on eternal things. So this morning I'm going to focus, and I'll spend most of my time on this, focusing on pride and possessions from verses 13, 16, and 17, and then pride of life in verse 14, before coming back then to the power of the Lord in verse 15. So first of all, pride of possessions. 
James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. The, the idea of, of poverty versus riches is, is a key theme in the book of James. He's already rebuked the church for honoring the wealthy above the poor in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. He said in verse 3, If you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, that you are judges with evil thoughts, verse 4. He's already rebuked them for failing to put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, in chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Now he's saying that the rich are arrogant and are committing evil in their boasting. He said he's now criticizing the rich merchants for their presumption because they're making their plans without any reference to God whatsoever. The rich merchants are saying, look, this is what we're going to do. Today or tomorrow, we're going to go to that city over there, and we're going to, we're going to, to do our get-rich-quick schemes, and we're going to make a profit. We're going to spend, there, spend a year there, and we're going to get rich there. Now, there's really nothing wrong with that on the face of it. I mean, people don't go into business in order to lose money. Because money is, it's, money is not immoral, Money is amoral. Money is neither good nor bad. It's our view of money and what we do of money, what we do with money that can be either virtuous or sinful. And you can use money to, to send a, a gospel-proclaiming missionary to, to uh, some country off in the, in the Middle East. Or you can, can use money to, to build a, a church building where, where God's word is going to be glorified. And we all know that, that it's not money that is the root of evil, but the love of money that's the root of all evil. And I think that's precisely the problem that James is addressing here. I think what these rich merchants are demonstrating by their plans, they're betraying the fact that they really do love money. They're focused on gaining possessions, and I believe that this wrong focus caused them to forget God in their plans. They were proud of what they were going to accomplish. And God didn't even enter into the, into the equation for them. They're going to this particular town for a set duration. They're going there for, for one year, and they're going to make a profit. They're presuming on the location and the duration and the results, forgetting that it is God who is sovereign over each of these things, not them. Now, in this passage, James isn't, isn't directly criticizing their desire to make money. In order to, to see that, you really need to have to step out a little bit and look into the wider context. Like I said at the beginning, it's quite clear in, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Now, we'll, we'll study that in depth next week, but let me just read verses 1 to 3 of chapter 5 for you. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Okay, that's pretty stark warning against what these people were doing. 
it, the, the wealth that they had, had accumulated would actually add to their torment. They had laid up treasure for the last days. Now, does that remind you of anybody who laid up treasure for the last days? Turn in your Bible, please, to Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. I believe it's this section of Scripture that James had in mind when he, when he presented his teaching. Luke 12, 13. Here we have a, um, somebody who, is, who had come to Jesus demanding that Jesus tell this man's brother to hand over his part of the inheritance. So Jesus responded here with the, the parable of the, of the foolish servant in verse 15. Take care and be on your, art, on your guard against all this covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He says that a man who was, was, there was motivated by earthly treasure, and the man built bigger barns in order to store up his goods, and he says, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, and drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now be careful here. Don't over-apply this message. James wasn't saying that there's anything wrong with trying to make money, and neither was Jesus. The problem is with those who lay up treasure for themselves and are not rich towards God. So we need to ask the question then, how can we be rich towards God? How are we rich, rich towards God? By submitting everything that we have to Him. All of our finances need to be viewed as God's because they are God's. We are stewards of what God has lent us, so to speak. But it's not just our finances that are involved here. If you want to lay up treasure in heaven, it's not just your finances that God wants, it's you. Everything that you are and everything that you have belongs to God. And God, as the sovereign of the universe, has a claim on it all. One of the things that, that I've been, been really uh, thinking about and exercised by the Lord on is my use of time. It's so easy for me to waste time. And I would argue that time is a far more valuable commodity than any amount of money. And so I'm in the process of putting things into place to, to keep in mind my accountability to God for how I use my time, because my time is not my own. We're told, the King James says, to redeem the time, for the days are evil. So I really want my time to be spent on the glory of God. And I pray that that would be the same for you as well. Jesus said that if any would come after him, we need to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, Mark 8, 34. He went on to say in verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? So what profit are you in it for? What profit are you in this life for? Are you focused, focused on what this life has to offer? 
Or is your focus eternal, thinking about what the blessings that we are going to have in eternity with God? On Friday night, in our our Bible study with our our family night, I asked people to, 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 to say, apart from their blessings in salvation, what is the most beautiful thing that they have ever seen? And apart from from the blessings that you have in Christ, what is the best thing that ever happened to you? And I know Neil that night talked about the, the blessings of witnessing the birth of his son. Maybe some of you would, would say that, that it was when you met your husband or wife. I know I would say that, that, that thus far the best thing that happened to me apart from my salvation is meeting Jane. But all of those things that we say are, are the most beautiful or the best thing that ever happened can't even come close to comparing to the blessings that we receive in salvation and that we will know fully in heaven. So we focus on those things, and that makes our life in this world so much more fruitful for the glory of God. One of the young guys that was there was really, really neat. He's he's about 10 years old, and he said, you know, I just can't get past the blessings of salvation. Can you get past the blessings of salvation? I pray that would not ever be the case. That we will be as grateful for our salvation today as we were when when we first knew the grace of, of God in our lives. Now we can't do that by by drumming up an emotional response in our in our in our actions. It has to happen in our hearts. We need God to do that in us. We need His grace in order to be able to understand his grace. But is that your desire? Do you really want that? If we understood the treasures that are waiting for us in heaven, the treasures of this life would, would just be, become insignificant. And they would just become ways that we could get God more glory. And that's what they're supposed to be. You see, the things that we have in this life are so often chains that hold us to this life. A few months ago when I was, I was preaching through some similar ideas from the Sermon on the Mount, I quoted Bruce Coburn's song, Feet Fall on the Road, where he says, though chains be of gold, they are chains still the same. So what is it that is chaining you to this life? What is chaining you to this life? You need to, to let it go. Give it to God and say, I want to use this blessing for your glory, Lord. Help me to do that. Help me to let go of whatever it is. Because whatever is capturing our focus will distract us from heaven. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
The, the Apostle Paul warned in 1 Timothy 6.5 about false teachers who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But in that passage there, he offers the remedy. In verses 6 to 8, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Then he warns in verse 9 that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. It was a dire warning then, and it's a dire warning now. There is actually a teaching that is becoming increasingly prevalent in in the Western church, and even in, in the less developing countries, it's called the prosperity gospel. Beloved, the prosperity gospel is not the gospel. It is no gospel. It is not good news. It is bad news. These false teachers teach that wealth and health are signs of God's blessing. Yes, they can be, but what they're saying is that if you don't have wealth, If you don't have health, the problem is that you don't have enough faith. This is false. It is a lie. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that we are to flee those things. We're to flee those things. But here in James chapter 4, these wealthy merchants were boasting in their arrogance. And James says it's evil. It's evil. They were making their plans based on the things of this life. They were after material gain, and they did not even think about God in the, in the gaining of that material. James goes on in verse 17 that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now these are sins of omission. They were not doing what they were supposed to have done, and it it forms a summary of their arrogant planning. They knew what they were supposed to do in their planning. They knew that they were supposed to live for the glory of God, but they failed to do it. Now, I believe, again, this comes from Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 12. He says down in verses 47 and 48 that that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, he will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And for him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So this, along with the parable of the rich fool, is a... Is a It's a single sermon that Jesus preached. And the message here is a strong warning against hoarding in this life, against living for the things of this life and forgetting the eternal God. Peter David says that it may well be that while on the one level James is warning merchants about forgetting God in their business, but on a deeper level, he is reflecting on ideas such as those in Luke 12, 13 to 21, and viewing that the whole motive of gathering wealth rather than doing good with it, is a failure to follow the standards of Christian guidance. 
They should have known what they were to be doing with their finances. James just talked about that in, in James chapter 2, where he says, what good is it if a poor brother or sister comes to you in need and you say to him, go and, and be blessed, be well fed, without actually meeting their physical needs? The wealthy should have known that, but they rejected that. So again, I want to ask you the question, what is your focus? What is your focus with your finances? Of course, men, you have a responsibility to provide for your families. 1 Timothy 5.8 says that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. But what about the needs beyond those that are required to, to provide for your family? What do you use your profit for? What do you use the surplus of your, your income for? You are to use it for the glory of God as you submit your plans and your finances to Him. Now, we really don't need to be wealthy to fall into these sins. Any one of us can be focused on the things of this life to the detriment of our focus on the things of the next. Any one of us can be distracted or from what or, or who we're supposed to be serving. Next, in verse 14, James warns against the pride of life. The pride of life. Now, by, by intentionally living for eternity, that is the, the greatest cure for being focused and proud of the things in this life. He says in verse 14, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are amidst a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Doug Moo explains that James is asking in effect, how can you, being the kind of creatures that you are, presume to dictate the course of future events? In the first part, James declares, you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Now he's quoting here Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. God is eternal. God is eternal, but, but we are stuck in temporal bodies. And it's true, God has put eternity in the, into the heart of a man, Ecclesiastes 3.11, but that too shows our limitation, because Solomon goes on, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So we as temporal beings have no idea what's going to happen in the future. The merchants were arrogant in making their plans for next year, forgetting that they didn't even know what was going to happen tomorrow. They're boasting about what they're going to do today or tomorrow. But do you do that? Do you say, today I'm going to do this, or tomorrow I'm going to do that, or next year I'm going to do something else? It's, it's boasting. Now, you might not consider it boasting. Maybe you think that you're just making, uh, making a, a simple statement about what you're going to do. But to the extent that you make your plans without reference to the sovereign God of the universe, you are also boasting in your arrogance. Because you don't know what's going to happen next year. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't even know what's going to happen in the next minute. None of us do. 
So again, if our statements are not grounded and based on an understanding of who God is as the sovereign of the universe, it's boasting. We're boasting. Doug Copeland notes that that this is what the wealthy merchants were failing to take into consideration. They were forgetting the fact that life is uncertain, that life is frail, and that life is brief. So James then asks the question, what is your life? Stop and think about that for a second. What is your life? Do you think Matt Chandler at, at the early in his early 30s was thinking that he was going to be in a hospital less than a week later with a brain tumor? Here he was in the prime of his life with a, with a, a thriving ministry, and all of that came to a stop. And that's not just true for Matt Chandler. It's true for any one of us. We're all of us only a heartbeat away from standing before God. We need to be thinking about if if we were to stand before God at the end of this day, how would we feel based on what we've done through the course of the day? about the time that, that we wasted, or about the things that we did that, where, we, where we dishonored each other or dishonored the Lord. Now, we need to thank God here that, that Jesus Christ is, is filling up our righteousness, that our righteousness is in him, not in our good works, because otherwise we would be, be crushed under the weight of this. But I want to, like James here, spur us on to be thinking about eternity, to be thinking about the frailty of our lives, to be thinking about the gift that our life, that our life is. I know a lot of the older folks that are sitting here this morning, they know the frailty and the brevity of life. Maybe you're here not as, as strong as you used to be or not as fast as you used to be. Maybe your body is racked with aches and pains that you never used to have. Now, young people who are in your your prime, so to speak, you have a lot to learn from these people. You have a lot to learn. Think about the way that a godly older person is humble. Think about the way that a godly older person wants to live their life for the glory of God. The way they're able to say with Paul, I desire to to depart to be with the Lord for that is better for me but it is more needful right now for me to be here. We can learn from the older people in our congregations in this. Proverbs 20.29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray gray hair. So young people, you may be strong now, but that is not going to last forever. Are you spending your strength on serving yourself? Or are you spending your strength on serving God? We, we live in a culture that is, is, uh, craves adrenaline. We, we live in a culture where, where people are doing death-defying acts. And I've done, I've got to say, I've done some pretty foolish things in that sense as well. 
But I, I began to realize a number of years ago that I want my life to be worth something. I want my death to be worth something. I don't want to make, the pay, uh, make a page in the paper because I was doing something crazy with a shark or something like that that, that, that caused my death. There was just last week in South Africa, there was, was a, a young man who was, who was on the, 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 uh, the South African bodyboarding team, and he was, he was killed by a great white shark. Here he was, 20 years old, in the, in the prime of his life. Cut down, just like that. And his father said that, that at least he was, was doing what he loved when he died. I don't think that's going to be any consolation when you stand before God. He might have been doing what he loved, but he's still dead. We need to think about these things. Any one of us, any one of us could face God this afternoon. And I want to talk here for a moment about the way we set our goals. The way we set our goals. Where does God fit into them? Are, are you trying to tack God onto your plans, or are you submitting everything, everything to him? Now, I need to say here, do you understand the difference between a goal and a desire? The difference between a goal and a desire. Now, the, the difference might seem inconsequential, but it's actually huge. We all have desires, and some of them are good desires, but the problem is often when we make our desires our goals. The problem is often when we make our desires our goals because it's only a hair's breadth of difference between a goal and an idol. Let me say that again. It's only a hair's breadth of distance or difference between a goal and an idol. What happens when the goals that you set for yourselves are frustrated? When the things that you have set your heart on as a goal do not happen. You can tell that it's an idol by the way you respond. If you respond in sin, by becoming bitter or angry at another person or at God, then you have revealed an idol in your heart. Now, for, for many years, my goal, so to speak, was to get married. That was my goal. And God frustrated those plans in some really bizarre ways. If you've got a couple hours, I'll tell you the story sometime. I mean, I was... I had a long career of singleness. But it took that length of time for me to realize that for me, marriage was an idol in my heart. Now, marriage is a good thing, God's Word says. It's a good thing. But to the degree that it was not submitted to God's plan for my life, it was an idol. And it's, it's really amazing the way that, that God worked because one of the things that really impressed Jane about me when we met was the way that I was submitting my plans to the Lord. That I did not see, and I was quite 
quite clear about this, that marrying her was not my goal. Yes, it was my desire, and it still is my desire, believe me, but it was not my goal. Because I didn't know whether marriage was what God had for us or not. I couldn't know that. I said to her, my, my goal is that to whatever end, our relationship will bring us closer to God. That God will be glorified in our relationship, even if he closes the door on the relationship. Now, I didn't get there overnight. It took me all that period of singleness for me to finally get there. But young people, I really want to encourage you to be thinking about that as you think about preparing for marriage. Now, for some reason, I'm not sure why, but, but women seem to be particularly prone to this, that there's this desire to get married. And so what happens is when they, when they reach a certain age and they have not yet been married, they often settle. They settle for a man who is not going to be a godly leader. For a man who is not going to put his relationship with, with God above everything, even, even with his relationship with her. And so many women then end up trapped in hard marriages. Now, is God sovereign over that? Yes. He's still, he's not the author of sin, but he still will use that as a tool of sanctification in their lives, but it is not a fun process. So we need to ask the question here, are my plans, are my plans goals? Now ask the question here, what is God's goal for me? What is God's goal for me? If you want to find out what God's goal for you is, you have to look in his word. That'll tell you quite clearly what God's goal is. And it can all be really summarized in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Christian, God's goal for you is to become more like Jesus. Whatever circumstances you face in your life, God's goal for you is to be like Jesus. And notice there, he says, it is, you have been predestined to that end. This is God's plan for your life. This is God's will for your life. It's God's will for your life that you will make, that you will be grown to be more like Jesus. And it will use the hard things in your life, he'll use the good things in your life to do just that. God's will will be done. God's goals are never thwarted. God never has to backpedal when something happens and say, uh-oh, uh-oh, got to go to plan B. God's plan is always, plans it, is always plan A. So we need, to, we need to think about these things when we make plans. Now, it's, it's not wrong to make plans. I'm not saying that. James is not saying that. Because if we, we, it's, it's wisdom to make plans. It's wisdom to, to, to plan for the future. It's wisdom to seek to provide for your family down the track. But we need to submit our plans to God. And that's why, as we come to, come to my final point, that's why we need to rely on the power that's in the Lord. The power that's in the Lord. Verse 15. 
Instead of doing all that, instead of living for the world and making our own plans, we need to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Lord willing. Lord willing. Again, we are spiritual beings, but we are caught up in temporal bodies. God is outside of time. God is dictating the course of all human events. Indeed, he's dictating everything that happens in his universe. And he planned it out before time even began. He says in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. C.H. Spurgeon opined, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff in the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. Nothing is too big or too small to escape God's sovereign control. So I need to ask you, do you live your life in light of the fact of God's sovereignty? Are you resting in the sovereignty of God over every single detail in your life? The sovereignty of God is not just some, some heady theological concept that, that, that professors like to debate. The sovereignty of God is real, and the sovereignty of God is meant to be discovered, and the sovereignty of God is meant to be relied upon. The sovereignty of God is meant to be lived out in our lives as we submit our will and our ways to him and his will and his ways. Matt Chandler intimately knows the uncertainty and the frailty and the brevity of life. James is not talking here about legalistically saying Lord willing every time we make a statement. We can say those things out of habit without even really considering God's sovereignty. So it's not really about the words so much as the heart, your heart in your decision-making process. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now just as I finish here, I think I would be remiss if I didn't say a brief word about decision-making and the will of God. If I didn't make a, make a a brief summary here and talk about what what God's what our responsibility is under God's sovereignty in the way we make our decisions. Now, if you have a decision to make, if you have a decision to make, you, there really needs to be a, a, a four-step process in that four-step process. First thing you got a decision to make is pray about it. Ask the Lord's will to be done. Ask for his wisdom as you make that decision. Secondly, you need to measure it up against God's word. Does the thing that I want to do line up with what God's word says is right or wrong? 
Because if, if I plan on robbing a bank, there's really no point in praying about it. It's very clear. It's very clear that I should not do that. If your plan is to marry an unbeliever, don't need to pray about it. God's plan is that you do not do that. So we need to submit ourselves to what God's word says is right and wrong. Then thirdly, we seek wise counsel. These are our usually older men and women who, are, who, who know God's word and have a reputation for living out God's word. Go to them and ask them. God has, has placed these people in our lives, in our schools, in our churches that we can go to and seek their counsel as we make decisions. Then finally, we just make a decision. Just make a decision and do it. Because God in his sovereignty will overrule and will guide your steps. Because remember, the heart of a man plans his way, but it is the Lord who establishes his steps. So I want us to think about these things as we make our decisions. And I know some of us might be tempted to think that the things that God does in our lives are hard. Often they are. You might even be tempted to think sometimes that God doesn't really have what's best for you because of what you're currently facing. We need to ground yourself in the truth of the gospel. God is not only sovereign, but God is also wise. And God is also loving. And he demonstrated his love for his people in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What more evidence do we need of God's love and God's sovereignty and God's wisdom than the cross of Jesus Christ? So we can make all of our decisions based on that historical fact. That God loves you, Christian. That he sent his son to die for you. That his will will be done in your life. Let's pray together.